Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. The Tunaris Podcast is proudly sponsored by Inline Eco your trusted partner in asbestos removal and re-roofing services across Ireland. Your peace of mind and safety are our top priorities. For more information, visit inlineeco.ie. Uh, my name is Mark Lydon. I'm the governor here in Lochkin House, an open centre in County Cavan, just outside Black Line. It's a low-security prison. We have 140 capacity. When you get here, it's different. Um, from what you'd be used to. Um, it's different for us all, but here is great. You've got the visits, which are every day, all day long. There's, there's no time limit on your visits. The kids can come up. They can see, in a, honestly, a fabulous environment. It doesn't feel at all like a prison. There's a lot going on here. We've got the school as well. And one of our new innovations here with our music teacher, Andrew, is we, we formed a, a jail band. Um, they're actually pretty good. It's a much, much more relaxed atmosphere. It's a, it's a low staffing model. You get an awful lot more responsibility. You work your way up to getting your temporary release programs where you go home once, maybe twice a month to be with your family. I think it's a great place to, to finish up your sentence. Um, and I hope you enjoy the, the film that's coming and you get to see what we have to offer. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Two Norries podcast. I'm your host, James, and I'm joined as always by my good friend, Timmy Dan. Hi, everyone. And we're up in Lockin House Open Prison in County Cavan, Black yeah. Lion. Nice back have, uh, We have a past guest on today. How are you doing, lads? Yeah. Um, Damien, Damien Quinn. Quinn. Yeah. How are things? Well, two years since you were on? Two years since I was on, yeah. And it's good to come back and kind of recap on where we were then and where we are now before we before we get into that what's it like being back in Lock and House because you were here as a well I was just saying there on the way in like when I was here like um, uh, you might remember on the last podcast I mentioned my weekend away yeah um, do you want to give us a, a reminder of what happened well it was uh, the, the weekend of the Man United and Chelsea uh, 2008 Champions League final Um I wasn't really happy up here. Just, just, just before, Lachlan House is one of the open prisons as well mm. in Ireland. Um, yeah. Just to confirm that. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and, like, the education unit is outside the gate, so you can walk in and out the gate, you know, like, so this particular morning, well, after the final, I said I'd take a weekend for myself in a, in a, with a view of getting sent back to the block because I was doing different education down there that wasn't available here. So that was the plan, to get sent back. Uh, got sent back uh, after taking a weekend and um, 
got to continue my studies in, in Castlebury. So I haven't actually been back up here since I, 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 I took that weekend. But mm. it's great to come back and check out the scenery because it is a nice place to look out across the lake there and all that stuff. So yeah, yeah. it's a nice little spot. But yeah. when people hear about, you know, people breaking out of prison, they might think of digging holes with little <laughs> pick like Shawshank Redemption. But you literally walked out the gate and left the note behind you just to say look lads are not going far I just want to go back to the other prison to finish yeah. my course yeah, watch the Champions League and United won United won that's why I, I wanted to go out and celebrate <laughs> that so I came back on the Monday morning as well but like what I'd done that day when I left I just put on three changes of clothes and walked out the gate but I certainly wouldn't be advising people to do that yeah. and you can actually get more time now for that uh, and it's not like you're escaping no it's, you it's, just, it's completely up to you whether you stay or not yeah. because the opportunity to stay here and finish out your sentence here is what every prisoner wants mm. so it's not about escaping from one of the main jails yeah. and getting over bars or digging a hole it's like you just walk out the door and you do your own thing like exactly. okay, it, it was here for me if I wanted it but yeah. I made it clear to the governor when I first came up I didn't want to be here like I had I enjoyed the piece of the block you know mm. I liked kicking out my door at half seven in the evening I was studying you know I had, I had plans it was, it was just a space I enjoyed here like it's open boredom can sit in I yeah. myself found myself doing things that I didn't want to be doing and that's why I met but that's what you actually done back there was um, like knowing that there was a course that you were just completing and you actually genuinely wanted to go back and do it. Mm. That happens regular enough yeah. with prisoners. Um, they want to finish. And, and, and I've heard it as well from other people that because of the course that they were doing and the enjoyment they were getting from it, they've actually asked not to take temporary release yeah. from prison because they want to continue. And also some yeah. people feel safer in prison than they actually would in their environment on the outside but that was it like I wanted to make the best of a bad situation I knew that the education and training in prison is every bit as good as the education and training outside of prison and I wanted to get as much as I could out of a very negative time in my life yeah. and I did just that but when they moved me like my, my teachers didn't move with me you know the people that I relied on heavily for educational support in prison with me that were doing the same things as me they didn't move with me either mm. so um, I wanted to get back to that security mm. That, that education and that structure that I enjoyed while I was in prison. Mm. Yeah. And you know, from that education, just to recap on, mm. on um, the last podcast we done, what continued on from that education when you got out of prison that time? What continued on? That was a problem, like, I suppose. When, when when I got out, there was no continuity, do you know what I mean? Everything that I was working towards, like um, I was kind of hoping to get into college when I got out, um, they wouldn't, they wouldn't. I had a meeting with the college and I came through IASIO, they know where I was coming from. Mm. They brought me into the college and they asked me about my offending behaviour. Didn't ask me about what I wanted to learn and I never heard from them again. I couldn't get on the housing list, I couldn't get a job, couldn't get couldn't volunteer do you know what I mean so you had difficulties when you left huge difficulties and I ended up right back to where I, where I started within the first six months you know and mm. I was I formed one of the statistics where half the people that get out of prison end up back in within the first three years and like that's firmly because of a lack of access to opportunity in my head mm. it's certainly it's what I experienced so so that actually correlates with, with what you're actually doing at the moment. You mm. learn from that experience that something needs to be done. Yeah. So just give give people a bit of a, an understanding of what you do at the moment. Yeah. 
So, like, um, um, the whole journey, like, I always struggled when it came to vetting. Vetting was always uh, the Achilles heel that I struggled with, do you know what I mean? Everywhere I went, I'd always try and put my best foot forward, and I'd be forced into a situation where I'd have to talk about something I was trying to forget about and move on from, and it was a very, very hard thing to turn uh, that discussion from a place of negativity to positivity. So, um... So I always felt like we needed something else that would support people and capture what's right and what's strong today rather than what was wrong all those years ago, like, you know, so um, um, I, I, as I kind of, we outlined about the idea on the last podcast, you know, this idea of Spira Nua, you know, this new positive disclosure model, a strength-based disclosure model. Um, it was actually the first time I spoke about it publicly was with both of you. Yeah. Um, um, Breaking news. Break, breaking news, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, where we're at today, like after like, speaking to you, after doing all the research on it and everybody kind of seeing merit in what I was saying, I pitched that idea to Social Entrepreneurs Ireland. Can, and, you, uh, can you just give us a little bit of a description of what Spirano is again, just for some of the listeners that may not have heard the Predom- first podcast? Yeah, so predominantly Spirano is like peer mentoring program and what we do is we support each other to kind of identify our strengths mm-hmm. you know document our steps out of a life of crime what we're doing right our educational pathway our you know abstinence from drugs and all that kind of stuff our plans our goals our aspirations and we get that all assessed and we see you know have these goals and uh, and aspirations been met you know um certified all that type of stuff and we document it and we set it up in like a a portfolio of commitment to change and then that's passed over then to be assessed by the criminal justice system based on their own benchmarks of rehabilitative outcomes Mm. so when that happens then Mm. it brings it right up to date and if you can imagine like a safe pass for people with convictions that's pretty much what we're offering okay and draw like if you want to start something up like Mm. that or if you have an idea like, how do you go about it? How do you get funding? Or do you want to talk about that? Yeah, well, look, um, when I came off, the, it was a, a college project, and rather than gather dust on a shelf, you know, when everybody was saying, yeah, that makes sense, I couldn't shake the idea. So I pitched that idea to uh, Social Entrepreneurs Ireland. I actually, I remember seeing the link on Facebook, and I was half kind of thinking, is this is a bit of a scam or what? But I went and I pitched, I gave them all of the details on my idea, they invited me onto the Ideas Academy and uh, we've done a lot of workshops around kind of storytelling, business development, business structures and all that type of thing. And then we um, uh, we got the opportunity to pitch again. So I pitched and I was an awardee on their Ideas Academy and uh, they funded the, the, the cost of uh, startup and setting up the website and that type of thing. So that's up there now. Alongside that, then they asked me to come on back onto the uh, the action lab, um, and again um, we went through the same process. Now I was kind of thinking about self sustainability. It's all right getting funding, like, but the funding ends, you know, the project ends uh, if it, if you can't make it self sustainable. So I was looking at kind of developing a disruptive coffee brand. Now they didn't run with that because it was a bit of a drift from what I was talking about. Yeah. So um, 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 we didn't, we weren't successful there. But at the same time, we were successful under Kickstart. So we got funding through Kickstart. Uh, it was uh, out of the Dormant Accounts Funds. It was probation and Department of Justice funding to do a feasibility study and kind of a commercialization strategy 
which is just finished now. And most recently then we got additional funding off Rethink Ireland uh, to develop a companion app for when people leave prison. So then in, in my head, I would like to see people leave in prison with a, a free phone that's given to them with the app built in. And uh, they will know where to access services if they get a sudden go on your out because that's usually what happens there's never any guarantees people can be at the gate to meet somebody it could be out any day so at least they'd have this and they'd be able to find the services that are nearest to them until somebody connects them and and as you're speaking there I'm thinking right I'm thinking right okay a guy gets out of prison Mm. he's struggling okay he has this phone he has an app okay maybe on that app there's a a group Within his area, our town or city, yeah. where there's prisoners from from prison previously, have a little group and they can connect as peers mm. and they have a little group then maybe once or twice a week and they talk about the struggles they haven't been integrated back into society. Like it's a model like AANA GA yeah. where people with lived experience help those that are on the, the, the initial path of recovery. Yeah. It sounds like yeah, that's what something we're doing. that could genuinely work. Yeah, well, like we are. Like, so in my first year, like since that, um, I supported people directly. I had planned to do 15. I supported 11 people directly. Only one found their way back to prison. Pulled his back under the wing now, where we're at today now, with about 30 people. And they are learning how to become facilitators and peer mentors. We're developing our own peer mentoring handbook as well. Is it nationwide? It is nationwide. So I have people in, I have people in Cork, I have people in Limerick, people in Sligo, people in Dublin and uh, Galway. Uh, there's a few people, Mayo as well. So actually a good group of us got together there in uh, the Department of Justice last week. We had a meeting with the Department of Justice about their new criminal justice employment strategy. Uh, which is targeting people in prison and people on probation to get them job support and job readiness support. So that was a really interesting development, like people that similar backgrounds to myself or whatever were all up in the Department of Justice for a meeting. It was uh, it was quite a, a, an interesting experience. So we are feeding back into that now. We're kind of following up from that meeting. We're kind of working on uh, our own reflections just to make sure everything that there's nothing left unsaid mm. and that all ideas are, are, are aired properly. And, uh, and, uh, and I think that's important yeah. that the voices of the people who have lived that experience are mm. the ones that are talking about it in these departments. They're telling the people in the department, the department what works and what doesn't work mm. and how to do it and how not to do it. And I think that's very important. And I think you have to give credit too to maybe the department for taking stuff like this on board because yeah. these are things that 10 years ago were never happening. No, no. And like if you look into, say, hospitals, care of the patient, it's patient-focused, you know. So like care of people in prison, it should be care of them people and focused on what... Like we had an interesting thing recently where um, the department actually, for the first time, done a focus group with people in prison or people that had been in prison, people that are out. And like we were all part of that, actually. And... Uh, that led to kind of uh, questions around barriers to taking up employment, like whether they were real or, or you know, self-made. Do you want to speak to that a bit? Because that's a question me to me get asked over yeah. doesn't go to about what's the, like, people that, they don't really, some people in prison 
don't have any confidence that when they get out they'll be allowed to move on they'll be allowed to get jobs and courses and stuff mm. like that well look in fairness like uh, I was very naive in prison you know I believed that I was if I got all this education that it would mean something do you know what I mean I'd, I'd walk out the gate straight into a job the reality isn't that like you get out with a bus pass and a B&B for a night like but some of the statistics I've been looking at is where 82% of people believe that their past is going to prevent them from securing opportunities. So if you believe that, you know, you're more than likely you're not going to try. You're not going to try if guard vetting is a thing. And like I'm saying, that's not the case. Let's look at what you're doing right today. Let's, let's, let's look what your interests are. What are your strengths? What are your qualities? You know, what do you believe you're capable of? And, and then developing a narrative around that and attaching a value to that you know it's really empowering to kind of have them discussions so yeah things did happen in our past that we're not very proud of and that we'd like to move on from but since that time i've i've learned this this and this from that situation you know now i know this that and the other and here i am today and i'm applying to your employment because i know i have the skills to carry out the role you've advertised Let's have a conversation about what I bring rather than what I can't change. You just need a bit of ambition, don't you? Mm. And a, a bit of uh, support as well. Yeah, and that's what we offer. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And like there is opportunities there for people after prison, you know. And you're not a write-off, no matter what you did. Mm. And if you've released it, you have an opportunity to move on with your life. Yeah. And there's more opportunities than ever because people are more open to employing people with lived convictions and stuff that Senator Lin does in terms of government and policy and the stuff that you do and the stuff that we do and others like us that all contributes to maybe a shift in perception of people who are in prison because people, you know myself, some of the people that are in prison have a lot to offer, don't they? Yeah, they do, yeah. Look, in fairness, like I, I would have relied heavily on people for educational support. You know, they all had plans for the future getting their families back, you know, being playing a meaningful part in their families' lives, wanting to be somebody, wanting to give back, bags of potential, do you know what I mean? And, like, I've people that, as I said, relied on heavily for educational support, and then you read about them, then a couple of years down the road, you know, they're dead, they're right back mm-hmm. to where they started. Justice didn't prevail there, like, do you know what I mean? So my cause is their cause, do you know what I mean? Um, it, it, it has to change, like... What is your overall vision what do you want to see your life succeeding in here what do you want to happen and you know that you're after fulfilling a purpose well if I was to talk about highlights let's say of the last year a highlight in my life the last year a guy I was I've been linking him with um, I imagine he was living beside a river um Fast forward 12 months, he's done a shitload of work on himself. You know, he's gone, he's taken every opportunity course that has been offered to him. And um, most recently, I called round to his house and he cooked me dinner. That is stuff. And you want to see more and more I, of that. Yeah, and that was, you know, like like I, I might have op- opened a door here or there, but he stepped up and walked through it, you know what I mean? And, and to go around and have him cook me a lovely dinner in his house after recovering from all sorts of chaos and homelessness and all that, that for me is, is what I enjoy being a part of, a little part of. I remember the first time we, we, we spoke on the first podcast and we spoke about the Garavetic process. Mm. And we had ideas, mm. all of us had, had similar, near enough similar ideas to how the, the garavetting process should be done instead of the way it is done now. Yeah. So we both said that maybe when somebody's out of prison, okay, 
there's a board that they go in front of, they look at what they have done through education, personal mm-hmm. development, how well they're doing now with their counsellor or whatever, whatever else, and they look at it as like, a little like a parole board, mm. and they say, like, this man, like, he's doing really well, let's put him on the system, as in, like, yeah, he's doing really well, his garavetting's there, and when somebody goes about garavetting process, right, the garavetting is there from what they have done, but there's also something next to it that says, right, this man has done this in mm. his past, but here is this note. This mm. is what he's done since. Mm. You know, so you have this from the past and this from now from the last two, three, four years. Yeah. You know, instead of the guard of vetting coming up and they see this list of stuff saying, he's done this, done that, done that, and this and this. No, these people don't get context of the story no. of your life yeah. previous growing up and mm. why you became addicted to drugs or alcohol, why you got involved in criminality and 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 uh, all other sorts of stuff, okay? All they see is the crimes. But mm. I would love for people to see the good stuff. Yeah. Right, he's in recovery. He's helping here, he's helping there, he's involved with this charity. You know, he's done all this work on himself. He's learned that his behaviours from the past weren't doing any, uh, serving him any purpose. But he has also had this stuff happen to him in his life. And this is our psychological evaluation of this is what happens when yeah. somebody goes through this as a child well that is what we're doing so like um, since the time so we we, we well, like in fairness another piece of stuff that does need to happen and you'll be talking to ISM no doubt the integrated sentence management program but and their officers but when you get inducted into prison, uh, you are told what you can do with your time, do you know, what services are available to you, what training is available to you, education, all of them types of things. And you, with the, the ISM officer, will make a plan on how to use your time well. Then when you come to the end of your sentence, sit down and say, you know, the goals that you set uh, with me in that discussion, did you, did you fulfil them goals? And if you can provide information on fulfilling them goals, then that has a value. But when you look at desistance, like desistance starts from day one outside the gate. You just spent years working on yourself in prison to get yourself ready for that. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And that doesn't even factor into anything. So that is captured. Uh, probation uh, reports are captured. Um, you know, uh, referrals from, say, sponsors, uh, letters of referral, that type of stuff. Um, educational attainment, you know, health and well-being, character references, they're all collated into a similar... So, like, if you're going through betting, you give them all of the addresses you lived at, mm. and all they do is they check is whether or not Damien Quinn had a conviction when he was living here, here, here. And that doesn't change. That will never change. But all of this other stuff is changed, and it goes undervalued in a, in, in a disclosure system. So we collate the same way, in conjunction with the, the 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 address check, and we get this other piece of information, in a and and if it, everybody is satisfied that the benchmarks have been met that they set out themselves, then it's validated and certified up to date. We're not guaranteeing future behaviour because nobody can guarantee that. Like this idea of rehabilitation, the only way you can measure that is if somebody never offends again and dies. You know, only then you can say with certainty, Chase, you know what, he was rehabilitated or she was rehabilitated. But by then it will have been too late because they will have struggled right throughout the rest of their lives with conviction, disclosures and things they can't change, even though they've changed themselves. 
and the the disclosures of convictions is something when 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 somebody has came across it, somebody that's doing well, they've gone into education, they're in recovery, mm. and they get doors closed in their face from interview after interview after interview because of the guarded letting process. It can be really disheartening, and some people actually give up. Well, like if you look at the the act, like it's there to protect anybody uh, or to protect children and vulnerable adults from anybody that has the capacity to endanger them. But if you went into that block there and you told the lads that's the way they're categorised now, they'd be horrified mm-hmm. because a lot of them people would be family men, do you know, would have done things out of necessity to put food on the table, do you know what I mean? It's wrong, it's, it's a crime, but it's a necessity, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But if you were to tell them they were categorised as a risk to children and vulnerable adults, they'd be horrified. So the actors got skewed. Like, I've seen people going for cleaning jobs, having to go through Gardevin, uh, working on factory lines, the cameras everywhere, having to go on Gardevin. Do you know, what does, it, what does it prove? Like, in my head, employers should really be saying, how having, me having a criminal conviction will impact on their ability to conduct business. Mm-hmm. And if they can't prove how that is happening, then they shouldn't have it in place. Because yeah, wider society has a role in terms of reducing crime so that the individual can do what they can do. Mm. The the justice, the prison, the probation, at some stage that person has a release date and they're gone from under the justice umbrella. Mm. And at that stage, we spoke at an international corrections conference in Porto and there was a few different countries there. One of them that stood out was Singapore, which has like amazing services. It's it's only a single city-state huge population but very wealthy the rates of recidivism in the first two years after release were very small okay. but after that they were very high okay. there was a lot of countries like that but it's like if you think about it right when somebody gets out and let's say they have a suspended sentence or they have they're linked in with the Cork Alliance or pathways to change or the pathways and you know, all these other organisations you know, yeah. pr- prison funded probation funded projects after the, after about two years, they're probably not going to be under them anymore. That's gone, yeah. And if they're not able to integrate into society through education, employment, the recidivism, the reoffending rates go up after the two years, yeah. and that's nearly in all jurisdictions. That's because the crutch is taken out from under your... Yeah, you know, like, but the, the, the first two years after release, yeah. the first 12 months, but the first two years after release is critical. Mm-hmm. If they're not in education or employment or training within that two years... Then you're, you're out two years, you're after doing all this, your life isn't progressing. All of a sudden, the children are getting old, or you need money, you're under pressure then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you have to provide for your family. And fellas kind of go back to it out of necessity, yeah. or else the pressure of it, and they just fuck it, they go back on the drugs to help you cope with it because your outlook doesn't look great. The first two years are gone, things haven't progressed. So, like, wider society does have a role in. Reducing crime. Yeah, but look, in fairness, if you send people to prison and you treat them like animals in prison, you'll ultimately be letting animals back out onto the street. Nobody wants that. Like, society really needs to have a think about whether or not do they really want people languishing on the fringes of society or do they want them to be fully participating members of society. I remember when I used to get into bother, you'd often hear people say, you think he'd cop on and get himself a job. I'd love a job, but I can't get one, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, um, uh, society really, really needs to take a deep think about, you know, there, there's spaces in here for people to really work on themselves, get their heads sorted out, 
plan for a better future, do you know what I mean? And really, they should be capturing that desire to change and using it for public good and, 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 and have people contribute in meaningful ways to society. 100% and I agree. Mm. Okay, I do agree. But I also believe this. I believe nothing as big as what we're talking about changes overnight, okay? No. And I believe... There is change within the IPS there is. at the moment, and I believe that because if if the likes of me and James, ex prisoners, are left in to do talks in prisons, do podcasts in prisons, no other prisoners going in sharing their lived experience and doing workshops with prisoners, mm. I think that is absolutely massive change, and I think they understand the importance of the lived experience, lived experience version within the prisons. Yeah. explaining to the lads yes I was like you but I done this 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 and that and no I have my own little apartment I have a little car I never thought I'd drive because yeah. I was off the road yeah. for 10 years you know I have a girlfriend I'm not drinking or drugging anymore I go to the gym I look after myself physically and and and, and my mental health mm. you know I think we're definitely on the right track. Mm. I think we're definitely there. We are. We are within the justice yeah. umbrella. Yeah. But it's you know it's the, the, it's the people that haven't got an understanding of crime, recidivism, desistance, recovery. All this is yeah. they're not in that world. There's a perception, but I suppose that's by I suppose why we're on the podcast. So yeah. It reaches it reaches people that wouldn't be familiar with this area. And then they might go back into their social circles and they might change perceptions and stuff there. But maybe people should be allowed to move on with their lives. Maybe they have a lot to offer. Mm. You know, we're looking fairness, you know, um, going back to what you said there, like that whole idea of uh, short term sanctions in the community and being on supervisions and all that stuff. And then that's stuff being taken away from you. And like, what we're doing with Spirit Newer, like, it's a, it's a it's a lifetime friendship. Like, yeah. we're it's an ongoing assessment model. It's it's, it's a family. Do you know, like, I get calls. Uh, people call amongst each other as well. We set up kind of uh, peer support for parents as well, so that they can talk about kind of experiences with their children who are caught up in different behaviours as well. Like, and that's taken that's taken root now as well. So, um, but like, <laughs> short term sanctions aren't enough. Mm. Um, you know, like it takes a little bit of time to get going again, but it can take too long, mm. and people then lose their desire, ambition, determination, and uh, end up going backwards and. That, that that that's where the system doesn't work. Do you know what I mean? Do you know, do you know if some somebody is in prison and they really want help, the help is there. And I'll say that because I, I I wanted help and it was there for me and I went about getting it. There was lists and there was waiting lists, there was mm. massive shortages of psychologists and counsellors and there was a list. But I kept myself busy by going to the school, right? I had all the services that I needed within the prison at that time. I don't know, like things have changed a little bit now with COVID and everything, and there's shortages. And, and I know people are trying to get things going at the moment, and we'll be very honest about it. But when I left prison, I had gotten to be used to within the prison, I had my services, I had a little routine. But when I got home, I was going back into the environment of my past where I was known as this, that and the other. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was going into a family where I had two young kids and a partner and my smallest fellow didn't even know who I was. 
my daughter was a little bit lost because it was like I was just taken from the family home one minute and now all of a sudden I'm back after three, three years. My wife, I'm getting to know her for the first time in my life. We've been together for about 10 years at this stage, but I was in the height of addiction, you know, and it was very, very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. And I thought about going back using, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, I actually had to go back to my doctor because I thought I was losing my mind because I was trying to do it. I had meetings, but I just didn't feel better. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't feel better about myself. And I found that more difficult than actually being silent in a prison. Because we are fortunate in Cork that yeah. we have the likes of Cork Alliance. So when when I had the opportunity to go in there, I was told, yes to me. There's a counsellor here for you. Come in here one a week, once a week. I got that done to help with the education and stuff. But we don't have that everywhere. You know, we don't. And I think... Like if you're, if you're getting released from here and you live locally... Yeah. There's not a whole lot up this side of the world. No, it's a bit remote, all yeah, right. Yeah, it's like that in other places. If fellas are going back to rural Ireland, mm. if you're going back to Limerick, Cork, Galway, maybe, yeah. to a lesser extent, Dublin, definitely, you're okay. There's a, lot, there's a lot there. If you're going back to Leitrim, Cavan, Kerry, do you know what places like Galway, there wouldn't have been much there now when I was getting out. It's interesting hearing you talk about kind of going back to home because... I made a detrimental mistake when I was getting out. I could get out anywhere I was getting out into homelessness. So I caught the map of Ireland, threw a pen at it, hit off and I said, I'll go there. But you know what? That no. was a good shot, because that's right in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you see, my re-entry plan changed. What happened for me was I was meant to be getting out into rehab, into uh, Harrison House, and the funding was withdrawn. I was open again, but funding was withdrew at the time, so my re-entry chan- uh, plan changed. So... There should be something. My point is here, right? My point is there should be a structure. Mm. If we're if we have people in prison and we're trying to rehabilitate them and get them get them to be a part of society, prison is probably thirty percent of it. The next seventy percent is when they get out. They're going back into the the environment they left, where where they were involved in stuff and the family at home are probably caught up in addiction and there might be violence and criminality, Mm. like. What needs to be set up, in my opinion, is maybe something separately where they don't have to go back to the natural environment. Transitional. They don't have to go there. They can go here, mm. where there's other lads trying to get themselves away from that life as well. Yeah. You know, where there's a counsellor that will still work with them once a week. Yeah. These are things... Like an aftercare house storm yeah. you get from treatment. Yeah. But you know what's the problem we spoke about there? kind of throwing the death on the map and I'll go there. Mm-hmm. But when I was working in a homeless hostel in Cork City, you would get, occasionally you would get fellas coming at, that's just after getting released from Cork prison, but they're not from Cork. Yeah. Now, when you're not from the place you that you're residing, yeah. you can't get yeah. homeless services, like you can get a sleeping bag, you can get the really emergency, mm. but you have to register as homeless with the city council. If you're not from Cork City, you can't register as homeless. Mm-hmm. You can't get social welfare. They send you back to your place of interest. Mm. Now, for a lot of fellas and girls, they either can't go home because they're in danger or they don't want to go home because of all the triggers or whatever. Yeah. But they end up like, <clears throat> on the streets begging or robbing mm. and stuff like that because there's no services. So that that centre of interest policy is very damaging for people that look want, look for a new start elsewhere, you know? Yeah, 
but that was my point like so I went to somewhere for a new start thinking do you know what I'll stay away from where I'm from I'll get myself together I'll come home when life is good do you know and uh, play a part in their lives but I wasn't accountable to anybody uh, where I went in that loan do you know and when things weren't working out then I found myself slipping back into old habits and getting myself into trouble and within no length of time when things weren't working out I was right back to where I started running from everybody I had to leave the country and seriously caught up in a lot of stuff and uh, but you know when I actually came around and got over all that went on and got home to where I knew people that I cared about there was a level of accountability there because I didn't want to put anybody that mattered to me through any of the shit again and that was kind of the start like so if I had my time over again I would have gone straight home like I have very good friends that are still caught up doing what they're doing they respect me enough not to do anything around me and I respect them enough and love them enough not to expect them to change you know what I mean I made the decision that I wanted to change like you can run as far and as fast as you like but you'll never run away from yourself do you know what I mean I learned that the hard way but when I got home uh, around the people that mattered and it wasn't easy I couldn't get work I couldn't get anything but I was accountable I had that level of responsibility to not want to put anybody through any shit again and then I started a bit of self-care long walks a bit of fitness then found a course well found my partner found a course found a job by accident through a friend but through all the normal channels of applying for these things the barriers just kept shooting up do you know what I mean but when I actually stopped looking and found a few bits and pieces where there was no barriers things started to improve so um, but like that whole journey should have been easier like for somebody that was really really trying uh, to uh, get as much as they can and plan for a better future inside that should there should have been a bit of continuity there what's your vision or forecast for the next two years there's a really interesting I'm pushing for I don't know if you ever heard of Grow Remote uh, have you heard of that organisation so they, they they reckon they've got 80,000 online jobs in prison oh, sorry in the community and you don't need to of it to work in your own sitting room do you know what I mean you're not around people so I believe there is a, a pathway there there's short 12 week courses free of charge I've, I've spoke to Grow Remote a number of times and um I would love to start bringing that training into the Irish prison system. Now, I know there's issues around um, internet access, but there's also uh, software you can get and permissions and all that type of thing. But, like, it's a 12-week programme. I remember when I was here, I was learning how to use computers and all that type of thing. Good jobs, entry-level jobs. And then you literally know how to do the job, You're leaving, and you're leaving with them skills. And you can just open a laptop anywhere and start working and start moving on. That 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 would be, yeah. We're looking like the education training is great. Don't get me wrong. ETB does all these interesting courses or whatever. Do you know what I? I would like to see something like that. Um, work inside maybe a facility, an office instead of people at home, because you still have the particularly people that are coming from prison. Mm. You still have that kind of thing that they're stuck at home and that little bit of in boredom thing. I think maybe if there was a setting, there is. There is, yeah. You do get where I'm coming from because yeah. I, I wouldn't like to know that I'd be sitting at home on a laptop for something long time no, no. my game. Right through the nose, It does, like in fairness, like my office is my laptop, yeah. do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I get a lot of work done on my, la- on my laptop, but like yeah. with Grow Remote, they have remote 
working chapters where they meet up uh, on a Friday, they go and have a cup of coffee, chat, yeah. chat about work. But it's informal and, mm. you know, you don't have to go through, in my head, you don't have to go through Gadavan to do that. And we've had them discussions and I've spoke to them about bringing the programme into prison mm. and they're wide open to it. All we need is IPS to kind of say. And what kind of, what kind of jobs is it? Is it selling, marketing? Is it selling yeah, so stuff? Yeah, computer programme and all that types of things, you know, anything to do with the computer. It's all remote work. Sounds interesting. It is, it is. And like, it's good pay as well and all that. And you get holidays the same way as in ordinary employment, you know, bank mm. holidays. Um, all that type of thing and like the, the, it opens up a whole new world to people yeah. do you know what I mean yeah. so what's, what is it about so Damien what, what, tell us about the probation journal I see something on Twitter there recently with Katrina Swarak from UCC yeah so Katrina has always been kind of a, a supporter of the project so I would have actually quoted her in my research but she she contacted me on Twitter one day she said would you be interested in doing an article on your project so uh I said, yeah. I didn't think it would it would uh, get published or anything, but we've uh, we we submitted an article to them, and it's actually going into the thirty year anniversary uh, probation journal this year, and it covers the whole Spear Newer project, the process, you know, with um, uh, the delabeling, the legal delabeling of people with convictions, and providing a passport uh, to support people as they seek opportunity but it also gives uh, readers and people offering opportunity that little bit of re- reassurance when they knowingly offer uh, an opportunity to people with convictions that uh, they is that published now can listeners go and read that now it's coming it'll be the, the journal isn't published yet it's gone to print but it'll be out now soon and uh, that is a big deal yes uh, considering you know where where we've come from and we would actually are. stick this podcast out when it's released and we can link the article in the mm. description so people can follow on afterwards absolutely yeah okay, so they can check us out on the website anyways uh, www.spiranua.org yeah, so so yeah check us out there and anyways I can be of any help to anybody I'm all in because uh, this, this stuff matters to me this stuff matters and to I me know, and I know James knows it yeah. and we just want to wish you absolutely going forward the best of everything likewise lad I'm sure somebody is going to jump in at an opportunity to help you financially because they'll see the complete benefit of this project, not just in, in Galway and around the Midwest. Beyond. I mean everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. That's the plan. Maybe even beyond. So the best of luck. Thank you, guys. Thank you. The Toon podcast is proudly sponsored by Inline Eco, your trusted partner in asbestos removal and re-roofing services across Ireland. Your peace of mind and safety are our top priorities. For more information, visit inlineeco.ie. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Two Nordies podcast. We are up in Lock and House in Harrington. Yes, I can. We're doing a kind of a, a project, really, is what you could call it, and the prison. It's an open prison, it's a unique place, and I have to forget your name again. Angela Denhe. And we are going to interview Angela Denny, and you're the head teacher in the education unit here in the prison. Yep, that's it. Now, we've been to all the prisons in Ireland at this stage. I've never seen an education unit that big. Yeah. It's like an actual school, isn't it? It is, it is. It's not like a prison at all. I used to work in a closed prison down in Castlery, and the difference is amazing. When you walk into the building, it's just so airy and light, so it is. 
Um, it, it's like a, it's like a normal school. There's no bars. There's no kind of grey or kind of bleakness to it. That can be in some of the closed prisons. So it's it's a lovely school. It's it's a really nice um, it's a really nice environment. Is that funded by Cav and ETB? Yeah, Cavamon and ETB uh, were funded by. There's nine teachers in the school and and myself. And what kind of programs you run normally? Well, for for nine teachers, we run a, a wide range of programs. Some are quite similar to all of the other prison schools. You know, we'd have English, maths, computers, all of the kind of the basic subjects um, more specifically then we have uh, a craft room so a room dedicated to textiles and sewing where people can make craft goods or they can make toys for the kids we have a ceramics or pottery room um, again people can make uh, things for their kids there or things for their you know artifacts for their houses and stuff like that we have woodwork we've got cooking um, other things that we have that may not be in the wouldn't be in the closed centres is we have our own poly tunnel. I don't know if you saw that it's outside yeah. the car wash, and we have our own little horticulture classroom outside. So we do so the men can learn how to grow their own fruit and veg there, and we can use that fruit and veg then in the in the cooking class. So we do. What about Open University? Have you got that here? We do. We've Open yeah. University as so well. If, if someone was coming from say a main prison. Would they be able to continue the course in Open University? Absolutely, here? yeah, absolutely. They can they can continue it on, and we've great links with all of the other prison schools. We're always in contact with each other, all of the head teachers. Mm-hmm. So we've no problem passing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot; we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST work around from you know one prison to the other also if someone was doing for example because of nine teachers even though we have a widespread of subjects that we can't offer everything so we might not have business studies for example or psychology but if someone comes up and they were uh, going doing their QQI in another jail what they can do is they can finish it off generally with that with the, with the teacher in the in the other jail yeah. almost do a correspondence course so they can get their subject finished what about um, say if you have somebody in a main prison okay and they're doing an apprenticeship on the outside. Yeah. And they finished phase two mm-hmm. and done phase three. And they wanted, they were up here and they wanted to maybe do phase four in one of the ITs. Mm-hmm. Has that happened before? Is something like that possible? Not in my time. Now, I'm only here four years. Yeah. So a lot of my time, unfortunately, has been married a little bit by COVID. So, you know, there was a lot of re- restrictions, obviously. We do have two in that position at the moment. And one is... 
They do run the phase that he wants to do in Sligo. We've great links with Mayo Sligo ETB. There's a direct bus outside the jail from here over to um, over to Sligo. So at the moment, we're in the process, I'm working on him getting to up there to do his 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 next phase in the with the ETB in Sligo. That's good. But we've no confirmation yet. The Open University and ETB is separate. Mm-hmm. So how how does it work if somebody is doing an Open University course? Do the ETB tutors facilitate that, or do they help them as like an add-on? Or how? What's the partnership like? Uh, so be the computer teacher Jenny would facilitate it with us, and obviously another subject teacher could facilitate it if it's a subject you know the same subject uh, area. Well, they've very good internet access here, so anyone that that comes up gets automatically gets internet access. So they do. So they're able to access all of their modules online. It's very easy for us to organise tutorials with their tutor as as well because we don't have the same restrictions. So say, for example, the school here is open all day, every day. All the men have to do is cross the car park over from their accommodation block to, to get to the school, So which is, which is great for us. It makes it very easy to, to arrange things like that. You're not dependent on getting someone up from a particular landing or dependent on officers being available if, if you know, the prisons are short-staffed or anything like that. So if we make a plan, generally we can, we can, we can stick to it. Men also have, sorry to cut up, men also have their own phones here as well. So that makes it very useful if the OU tutor is willing, they can ring the men directly on their on their own phones, you know, to, at an arranged time. And you know, if somebody's doing an open university course and they needed support with essay writing or the literacy or they might have dyslexia and stuff mm-hmm. like that, is the support available for them? There are, yeah, yeah. We've a literacy program here that we run, so the English teacher here, Katrina, she will be able to to help them with that. Excellent. That, yeah. And that was actually going to be my uh, question. I was going to ask you how do you how do you work with people with different learning differences and um, people who may struggle with reading and writing? You know, because there, there are a lot of people within the, the, the main prison population who can't read and write, and they would like to read and write. And I have seen some teachers along my own way really bring the pace of teaching down to the level of mm. the person they're teaching with dyslexia, dyspraxia, um, ADHD, mm. you know, just so they can get a nice experience, something completely different to what they were, exper- what they experienced inside in school. Yeah. You know? So do you understand the whole kind of? I'm obviously thinking you do because you look like somebody. That gets <laughs> no, you do understand the importance of that level of yeah. kind of communication and just really taking your time. Absolutely, the, the the prison teachers, they they really are an amazing bunch of teachers in the in the wider education system. They're so adaptive, so they are, and they're so good at reacting to you know d- different levels and abilities in the classroom and any additional education needs that that people um, people may have. We've two teachers who specifically deal with adult basic education, so that would be numeracy. Um, digital literacy as well as English literacy. So between the two of them, they can they can cover they can cover most things. Again, we're very lucky. We can get a lot of support if needed from the ETB as well. If we needed someone to come in with a, a particular specialism to help the the teachers with some with some training, you know, if we came across something that we hadn't yeah. have dealt with before. But no, in general, the teachers are, are are very well equipped to be able to deal with that, and they can. You know, they'll, they'll all change their lessons accordingly. We have enough time to do one-to-one teaching here as well with, with any literacy students if they prefer to do one-to-one um, 
reading and writing classes. And again, we're, we're so lucky where we've no restrictions. So if, if a teacher sets a time for the, the guy to come tomorrow, he'll, he'll be able to come. What do you enjoy about working here in this place? I enjoy getting to know the men in a, in a different in a different level. It, it's such so much more relaxed than the the closed jails. So you do get to to know the men in in a different way. Even coming across here in the car park now, I met um, Damien Quinn. I believe you were talking to to Damien here. Damien is past people of from Castlery and that, and I hadn't seen Damien in fourteen years. You know, so it's 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 amazing to see him and see how well he's been he's doing since he? he is absolutely flying. And great work as well for the people. He is absolutely now. I'm going to drop him an email when I get back to my desk and. See can we kind of forge some links there as well to get him to, to come in so seeing men progress as well and that so recently we just ran for the first time here a HGV lorry driving learner primary course so it's just to get the men as far as having their CPC card and get their learner permit so they can start the, the lorry driving lessons so we had 12 start the course unfortunately two had to pull out but we tend just finish it and it's, it's great to see them looking up courses now because at the moment Solis with the ETBs are running a huge amount of free lorry driving courses around the country, so they are. And to get on the course, you need your permit and your CPC card. So, you so pass as well, and manual handling. Yep, they yeah. run as well. The work training do organise them, so they do. So Mr Kelly here with the ISM officer, he organises them. Um, them courses. They're, they're a big deal for, for some of the lads going out. Absolutely. Because if you have... The safe pass and a man you can yeah. walk straight into the job because there's so much construction work at the Exactly, absolutely. And it's great to see the men achieve that and hopefully see them. You, you don't need to get There's a couple of other small things that we do. First of all, we have a band. We have the Lock and House House Band. I hope you get to see them yeah. play later. We're always looking for drummers. So anyone out there looking at this, if they're a drummer, we'd love to see you come mm-hmm. up here. We also run a unique, what's unique to Lock and is an outdoor pursuits programme as well. So the men can go out on hill walks. Generally, they can go out once a fortnight on hill walks and the teacher also brings them out surfing, so he does in the summer at the end of the year. And we're trying to forge more and more links with Sligo. So we are with both the Sligo IT and the Sligo E2B to try and get more men out to do uh, to do courses as well on the outside. What about um, personal development? And personal development and also physical education, do you have anything within the school for, for both personal development and physically. Yeah, physical education. We have a huge gym. I don't know if you've gotten a chance to see that. Uh, we'll have a look at it. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's, it's, it's really big, yeah. And the, our teacher is great. He runs, um, he does football training, so he does. He does a boot camp every morning, which is almost like circuit training. That's a really popular class. Mm. So only there a few weeks ago, he got his uh, football team from the outside to come in. That's the second time this year he got a a football team from the outside to come in. I think they bet them again, Pat, and they? So twice now we've, Lock and House have bet the bet the, the teams from Donegal and Fermanagh. So um, yeah, the, the men really, really enjoy that, so they do. And that. Do you know, in, uh, nearly all the other prisons, uh, if you're talking to the education people, there's challenges with lack of officers and detail and space and rooms. Yeah. Uh, what challenges do you face up here, or, or, if any? The challenge we would face from our... It's more of a challenge for us maybe than for them. But it is a challenge for the men as well is when they start to get temporary release. So it's great to see people get temporary release. It really is. So they'll start off maybe getting uh, out once a month for three nights at a time and that can go on up to twice a month. But that can obviously interfere then with the, with the routine. You know, the more 
often people are getting up and trying to release them or their head is always conflicted. You know, it's conflicted between home and to being but here as well. But they have to come back as well. Exactly. It is hard to see them come. You know, they can be a bit fed up when they come back. They're like sometimes, they're like ourselves, maybe in the middle of November on a Monday morning coming to work, they're a bit fed up coming back, so they are. Or oh, you go away on the holidays or when you leave for a few days and you're back and work on exactly, the Monday morning. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so that can be a challenge for us, especially if you want to run group projects. So we have to be very careful if we're running group projects that we can get a group that will be, you know, that will, will be there. But having said that, we're so used to people coming and going even during the day. Like you'd get men here up to the school who come up from the kitchen. So they come up in their whites for they come up for an hour in the morning and maybe an hour in the afternoon. And that really wouldn't be possible in the closed prisons because it's just so hard to physically move around the place on that. So Yeah, do you know some of the feedback we've gotten in other prisons was... Uh, and one of the prisoners put it very uh, succinctly to me. He'd be saying, if you go out to the school, this was in, I won't name the prison. If you go off to the school and you want to do woodwork, there's a woodwork shop. Mm-hmm. And if you want to do English, there's English class. And if you want to do crafts, there's crafts and art and art. He said, but if you're in recovery and you, or you want to do a bit of work on yourself, mm-hmm. there's nowhere for us. Do you ever think that like, that there'd be a specific programme, maybe a recovery programme, not just for addiction, but as Timmy was touching on, the personal development space, the life skills, their mental health, emotional intelligence, well-being. Do you think that there's a role? Would that be separate from psychology? Would it be psychology? Would it be education? Would it be both? Or would you like to see something like that? Absolutely. And it is an area I think that needs to be worked on. Uh, here, we have a psychologist now. George started um, about four months ago. So again, the school have already started to build good links with with Jared, I know he's getting involved in our parenting course, so he has. We also had the Mental Health Week um, this year and the Amber Flag Week, and the Red Cross have been great in running overdose prevention facilitation courses as well. But there is definitely a lot of room for improvement there in, in that area, yeah. which we would work with with psychology and that. I know Jared has started his own course as as well which has been going uh which has been going very very well yeah well we look forward to seeing the school in a minute great i'm sure we'll document that and people can see it perfect nice to meet you guys thanks very much bye-bye the tunaris podcast is proudly sponsored by inline eco your trusted partner in asbestos removal and re-roofing services across ireland your peace of mind and safety are our top priorities. For more information, visit inlineeco.ie. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Tonaris podcast. We're here with my good friend Timmy Long, as always. Hi, everyone. Nearly skipped you there, Timmy. <laughs> no, when, I, when I'm doing this the opposite way, I completely, do you know what happens? I get nervous and so, I forget, I forget what, this here. Do you know what you say <laughs> once or twice? Hello everybody, I am your co-host. <laughs> uh, I get caught up, you I see, know, I'm not used to doing the, the introduction. But anything, out of this, anything out of the routine can be all fucked up. Yeah. But uh, anyway, we're up in Lachan House, yeah. it's part of one little thing that we're doing at the moment up here. And we've a uh, guest here, a prisoner, this will be anonymous. Thank you. Because we don't want people googling and making judgments. So people hear the human side or the, the story of maybe somebody that's inside. So we protect your identity, and thanks for uh, putting yourself forward for this. No problem. Will you set the context for us of where you grew up, what life was like before you came here? Yeah, I grew up in I grew up in Limerick City. Uh, I'm 54 now, so I grew up. My childhood was late 70s, early 80s, I suppose, and I had a good childhood. You know, it's, I suppose what you consider to be a normal childhood. You know, I went to school, I played sports, 
kind of sports? Uh, from Limerick, so I had to play rugby. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Played hurling, played soccer, played them all. I wasn't, wasn't much good at any of them, but I played them all, you know. Um, yeah, just like I said, uh, I had a, I had a, a happy memories of it. Were, were you academic? Were you a smart kid? Yeah, I suppose I would have been, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, uh, reasonably, yeah. Mm. Did you do well in school? Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, I have uh, I've a degree. I, I had a degree in business studies before I came right. in here, but I, dig- I qualified in 1991 with that. And were you working in business? I was, yeah. For I worked in Dublin for over 25 years. What kind of a sector were you working in? I worked with the, the kind of semi-state institute, Department of Transport. Oh, and how did it all go wrong for you? Gambling. It's the only. It's the only thing that's. It's the, it's the thing that's put me here. Mm. It's the only form of a criminal conviction that I'd have, apart from minor motoring offences or whatever. All my convictions are gambling related. So right, right. Gambling became an addiction for you. As can you bring up, bring us back a little bit to when it actually started, or when was the even first time that you you gambled? I I can I can remember going to a bookies when I was very small when I was about 11 or 12 to put on a bet for my father now my father had absolutely no gambling issues whatsoever this was like a 20 pence bet he used to do every Saturday for fun like. but I remember one day he sent me to a bookies and I, I had to do a bet for him and there was something about the place I think that kind of I liked I grew up like when I say I had a happy childhood I did but I grew up with red hair freckles and glasses mm. you know and, and that brings issues huh? it, it does yeah. you know I mean it, yeah. In context, like actually, they're small, pissy issues. But you're a kid, like. when you're a kid, they're not small. You know, when you're getting yeah, constantly ragged and bullied and yeah. picked on because you've red hair and glasses, like. Um, and when I went into bookies, I remember it was all full of alphas. What I consider to be alphas, like you know, smoking and mm. patting me in the head, and none of them were judging me. None of them were the slagging boy, me. The boy row in the air. Yeah. Walking around. Yeah. And none of them were slagging me about the red hair. And none of them were slagging me about the glasses. And I go, just listen to it. And I remember my first. I remember. I remember. I did my first bet properly. I think when I was about fifteen, and it all went wrong very quickly after that for me. You know, was it dogs, horses, football? At start, it was horses and dogs. Yeah, and the biggest problem I had was like most compulsive gamblers will tell you, I had a big win. Mm-hmm. The know? worst thing that could happen. Yeah, I remember it. A fifty, a 50 pence bet in nineteen eighty four that I won fifty one pounds off of him. Fifty one pounds in nineteen eighty four was a. A decent penny, you know, and uh, like you're going back to a day where it was 40 pence for a pint, like, yeah, yeah. you know, so that was it then for me, pretty much after that, that kind of decided for me that that was how I was going to make my living, I was going to get rich quick. How would your money come from back then in, in, in relation to gambling? Were you working? Oh, I... I I would have cut school a couple of afternoons a week and worked and I would have worked a weekend job advertising in a newspaper when I was when I was like 15, 16. Mm. I always had a mind that was... So your money was held on? Really. Well, initially it was. After that it became stolen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? We'll get into that. So yeah. how did it gradually get to, get to where it was? Got to a point fairly quickly with me. I remember... By the age of 18, 19, I was kind of trying to study and I was trying to work and it just, I think my personality just was the type of fellow that wanted it all and wanted it now and 
I found the gambling was a release from other kind of pressures that I might have had. And there was also the financial element of it, like, and it just kept, it kept me totally preoccupied. It got to the stage where I very quickly wasn't earning enough money. You know, if I was, I I was losing it. You know, quite literally, the minute I'd get paid, I'd have it blown in half an hour sometimes. Then there'd be the odd time, the one in ten time that you'd win. You know, when you're just about to give it up, it pulls you back in. Yeah. Um, But even when I was winning, it wasn't enough then, because... The stakes just kept getting higher and higher and higher very quickly. Mm. It's, it's it's insidious. It's oh, completely. Just, yeah, and yeah. compulsive gambling myself okay. and we had a conversation uh, previously about it. Yeah. And I, I know exactly what yeah. you're saying. You know, there's mm. absolutely no control over it. No. Once there's money inside in the pocket, or there's money somewhere else where you can get it, yeah. you will continue yeah. gambling until there's yeah. nothing there. Yeah. Would you say you started stealing for the money then? Talk to us a little bit about that. Would have started at home, I suppose, you know, stealing money from the father's wallet or the mother's purse or the sister if she had money hidden upstairs. That's where I would have started when I was younger. After that, I can I can remember I remember once I, I stole I stole from a neighbour. I actually stole from a next door neighbour like and that was one of my first ever criminal convictions because they rang the guards. When you said that there, I felt even today like a little bit of shame, yeah. remorse, regret. The world, there's more than a little bit, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but that's what people do. You oh, it understand. Is. You it is. I'm, I'm sure it you, is. you understand that. No, that's what yeah. people, people do. Mm. Yeah, and it just got worse. You know, it got worse. And for me, it was okay then because I was able to justify it to myself as I went along because while I stole from a neighbour when I was very young, I was 17 or 18 when I did that. After that, the older I got... I'd, I'd consciously make a decision that I'd only steal money from businesses or companies or con money out of businesses and things like that because in my mind I was able to justify it that I'm not robbing yeah. an individual and sure they're insured. I was always able to just like any addict I could justify everything to myself very easily to continue what I was doing you know how did it come to a head for you? Oh, Jesus court appearances I suppose but like like I said you know, I'm, I was 51 when I got locked up on these charges yeah. and the first time I was in court I was 19 and I avoided jail between the ages of 19 and 51, you know, so... So, do you know, do you know the way um, a drug addict has, they hit a rock bottom? Mm. What were the different things that happened in your life that could have been your rock bottom, but they weren't? No, obviously, you're mm. recovering now yeah. we're from gambling addiction. But there was, like, I can remember and recall so many different times... That my life was in danger, that mm. I could have died from drug overdose, that I could have killed myself in a car or I fell here or I got could have murdered or whatever it may have been. There are so many things, but I only can see them now because I'm at the other end. Looking back at all the different things that happened then, what were the different things that happened in your life that a normal person would have stopped maybe if that just happened back then? Uh, I don't know, I suppose. The guards, the guards appearing on my mother's doorstep for starters would have been a constant reminder of what I was doing and I either at the time I either don't know but I either didn't care or couldn't stop maybe it was a combination of both but for me like I said I just became very immune to the whole process the worse it got I knew it was getting worse but I didn't I actually didn't care I mean I went into treatment I went into treatment for the first time in 1991 
in Bushy Park in Ennis. I was the first gambler in the door of a treatment centre in Ireland at that time, or in Bushy Park anyway, and I was only 22 years of age. And I didn't have a bet for 12 years. 12 years. Because I did what I was told, I did what I was advised, I went to my meetings, and I lived a relatively normal life, you know. And then things started to go wrong, I became complacent, I had a really good job. Can I just bring you back? It's question out there. So you're you're away from gambling for twelve years. Yeah. Just explain to people how fast you went back. Like, what were the different things that were happening in your life? What did you stop doing that you were doing all the time to keep yourself um, absent from gambling? So you know the way a drug addict they start thinking about taking drugs, right? If I'm in recovery, I start thinking beforehand. I keep it to myself instead of telling one of the lads or James or Sean boys I'm thinking about drugs a lot there at the moment instead of grassing myself up but I'm internalising it because I want to keep that thought to myself mm. and I eventually go and use and I relapse yeah. what was going on for you in the lead up to your actual going back gambling how was it how long did it take what was playing on in your life and what was going on in your head I suppose I got I got very complacent I suppose for me like I said, I, I had about 10 years, I was about 10 years into the whole recovery thing where I had then started to, I had started to stop going to as many meetings as I did. Uh, I used to go to three to four meetings a week religiously in Dublin. And then that was going down to maybe two, sometimes it was going down to one. Stopped taking phone calls from my sponsor. Basically what happened to me was I began to think I knew it all and that I had it beaten and that I could control it. And it just got the better of me again. Eventually, but I can honestly say it was probably building up for about a year or two that I knew I was going to go back Hamlin. I knew I was going to do it. It was only a matter of when, mm. you know. And, and the cunning side of that, yeah. you knew that this was this was this was happening. Yeah. But the strength, like the addiction, is already there in your bones. Twelve months before you actually had to gamble, yeah. because the strength and the willpower just to keep that. Sentence that all oh, lads I'm thinking about going back out gambling Let's away see, I, from everybody else. I could never do that because, and you'll you'll probably identify with this as 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 a gambler yourself. Huge amount of pride going on with me, and there was a huge amount of ego. Yeah, and I automatically thought that I was a lot cleverer than everyone else, and that nobody will know what I'm doing because I'm not falling around the place drunk, or I'm not walking around the place with my eyeballs hanging out of my head. They won't know if I'm gambling or not. You know, I can. <laughs> I just built up a whole wall of secrecy because I, I did everything by myself. Like I never committed a crime with anybody in my life. Everything I did, I did by myself, for myself and thought I was keeping everything under the radar. Mm. You know, like to this day, I have five friends. Five. We've been best friends for over 35 years. They knew all the time what I was doing. They knew all the time what I was like. They tried to help me. But I used to think that I was pulling the wool over their eyes as well. And I wasn't. The only person I ever fooled, ever, was myself. You know? Um, and just on the... Like, I remember when I stopped gambling around 1991, my smallest bet, or my biggest bet, probably would have been in around a £20 mark. Mm. 20 quid a bet. Uh, my first bet when I came out, uh, when I went back gambling in 2003 that time, was £250 win. And I always remember an addiction counsellor telling me that 
this is a disease that's grown inside you. It's not going to go away ever and it's going to keep growing and growing and growing. And that was proven by the volume and the size because when I went back gambling that time, it wasn't just one bet here and one bet there. I it went took off fast. I went fucking nuts. Yeah, it took off really fast you know, because nuts. like some people when they go back out uh, in addiction with, with alcohol and drugs, some people might start off drinking and have two bottles here. You know, that could never be me anyway. I'll just from that. But with gambling, it's the chase. Mm. You lose 200, you're chasing that 200. Mm. There's no stopping. Mm. You're always chasing. Mm. It's like drugs, you're chasing the next yeah. high. But with gambling, you're always trying to make back the money. And you could be 100,000 in debt. No one giving you money. But you will find money mm. to go away and see, can you win that money back with the intention of paying everybody back? Absolutely. The intention of Absolutely. doing good yeah. is there. Oh, is it? But yeah. it just it never works out. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. How, how did it escalate from there then? I spent 2003 right up to 2010 gambling, but I could sustain it. I had a really good job. You know, I was very well paid. I developed a big network of clients, customers, things like that, people that I could always have access. I could always have ready access to money if I needed it. And even that wasn't enough. I was bleeding wells dry quicker than you could blink and the more intense the gambling became the more risks I was taking then with regard to scams and things like that that I was coming up with to finance the gambling but again in the back of my mind I'd been in court at this stage prior to 1991 I was in court a few times between 2003 and 2010 I would have been in court several times all different small charges in different district courts around the country what kind of charges? fraud do you know what no, I'm thinking of you know, you know let's say if you're in a drug addiction mm. and you're going into court over a period of time you're going to end up in prison a lot oh. faster but you know with white collar crime like that fraud like that mm. there's a lot more leniency given and that's uh, I suppose there was then I don't think there is as much now but and with me as well there was a lot of cuteness involved mm. like I would go to court nine times out of ten when I would have went into court if I robbed you for 500 quid, mm. I'd have that 500 quid paid back to you before I went into court. Yeah. Now, I'd have had to rob you to pay him back, yeah, yeah. but I was paying you back, so when I went into court, the judge was saying, ah, sure, he's paid him back. There's no one hurt, yeah, no one. Yeah, yeah. And I was getting suspended sentence after There's a lot of manipulation going on. Of course there was. Did you ever hear of Tony O'Reilly? I have. I've met Tony, yeah. Yeah, mad story. I suppose you could identify, he was working in a post office. He That's right. Nearly yeah. two million yeah. cash into Paddy yeah. Hall. Yeah. But if you're in that position, you would have done the same. Oh, it's irrelevant how much money you have. Yeah. If you're in a position to access funds, even if they're not yours, yeah. you're going to do one. I remember in, in that period, I had become numb from the whole thing. And I remember like, I, I, could walk out of, I could walk out of work on a Friday earning three grand a week with commissions and bonuses and all other things that I had put into it. I could walk out with three grand in my, in my pocket at five o'clock. And by seven o'clock, I could have nothing. Gone. Or I could have 20 or 30 grand. Mm. But I'd gotten to a point where if I had the 20 or 30 grand, I didn't care. If I had nothing, I didn't care. It took all emotion from me. But I do remember one day I left work on a Wednesday evening and I had three quid in my pocket. Three quid. And I went into bookies and I turned the three quid into 20. And I came out ecstatic, delighted, because I had 20 quid that I could feed myself. 
Mm. So there's complete insanity. Like anybody that doesn't understand gambling. Yeah. <laughs> but eventually, yeah. you ended up in prison. Yeah. So what's it like for an educated man with a good job and a good salary? Like, what was it like coming into prison? Culture shock. What was your experience? Yeah, it was a big, big culture shock for me. Did you go into Limerick prison? Went to Limerick to be committed, but I only spent uh, I only spent the COVID quarantine period in Limerick, and they had to move me because uh, I was morbidly obese going into prison. I was twenty eight and a half stone. Like I, I, wouldn't, I, I couldn't walk fifty yards yet, and I couldn't climb a flight of stairs. So they needed to put me in a prison with a ground floor. So they sent me to Port Leash, which was great. What way do you know? Sixteen, ten. Yeah, I can't imagine you're that size. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, we don't want to know the details of, of, of your crimes or anything like that. That's, That's okay. not what we're here for. But where did where did this all take you mentally towards the end? Like um like how bad did it get? Like how bad were the things that you were doing? How far did it bring you? And like do you know the way I, I look back at uh, some of the things I've done when I've like you, you feel shame, yeah. you feel regret and guilt. You know, and you said, jeez, I've done things that I, I thought I'd never do, but were you brought to that place as well in your own life and did it bring you to a place that you said, like, this this, this is not who I am at all. I have to look at this. I always thought that, but I couldn't, I couldn't get, I couldn't get a grip on it. And I only got a grip of it when I came into prison with the help I got in Port Leash off of a lady I'll talk about her in a while. But, I always had it in the back of my head that I was too smart. I was too clever to go to prison. I was always going to beat it. I was always able to stay ahead of the system, blah, 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 blah. That's the way I operated. Arrogance, ego, call it what you want. But um, yeah, going into prison was a culture shock. With, with me then, you see the crimes, they were getting bigger financially to a degree, but none of them were huge. Like, And again, I'm not... I could have done an awful lot more damage than I did but the reason I didn't was deliberate insofar as I reckoned if I kept them all fairly low yeah. I'd stay out of prison yeah. but I knew I knew that it was an inevitability with the amount of yeah. the amount of them like I had to end up in prison I had no choice yeah it's coming down oh yeah, yeah. yeah. What like, was I had guards telling me that for years in what was it like when you got sentenced uh, the next clause then again I knew it was coming and I'd kind of resign myself to it, but it's still very different when you have to go in there. I don't know if you've been in Limerick Prison, like, but it's, a, We've been there, yeah. it's not a very nice place to go, you know. Mm. Um, of all the prisons, and I've been in a fair few of them on this sentence. Like, Cork, Cork Prison would have been probably the nearest to Limerick Prison, I'd say. Cork, I've been yeah. in Cork and yeah. remand because I was going to court. And the old one. Uh, uh, the old one. Yeah, I was in the old one years ago yeah, for a weekend, yeah. yeah. Well, as we're talking here, I, I think it's it's important to bring you back one step, okay? You were 28 stone stopping, okay? Yeah. You were, uh, your mental health was completely was destroyed. You were, you were at, you were definitely overeating oh, like, to be able to yeah. soothe yourself. Yeah. You no, know, you were gambling and yeah. you were overeating as well. Yeah. So you were cross addicted. Yeah. And you're obviously soothing yourself every time you have a, a knockdown with the gambling, with food. Food. No matter what you win or lose, it doesn't matter. No, because the, that addiction is there as well. Did, did you have to get help with, with the, the, the food addiction as well? Uh, I did, indirectly, not the way I should have done. Yeah. Um, I collapsed one night in Port Leash. Didn't know what happened to me. I woke up with four officers around me. I was in the shower. 
and they brought me to the doctor and the doctor told me I had type 2 diabetes and basically if I didn't cut myself on I had about 6 months to live and since then you're down 12 stone. Since then I'm down 12 stone, yeah. Okay, man. And what's life like now? Obviously we're up in Lock and House. Fair. That's fantastic. For someone that's in jail to say his life is fantastic. But it is because yeah. I've... I can understand that. I've I've, I've no worry. My, yeah. my only worry today concerns my mother. She's at home in her own with dementia. And yeah. that's something I feel hugely, hugely bad about. That I've left her in that position. But that's just something I've had to deal with. But... That aside, my life is as good as it's ever been, to be honest with you. Do you think if you didn't go to prison, did you stop gambling before you came to prison? Or was it something you had to stop the day before you came into prison? I was walking to court to be sentenced on the 14th of October 2020 in the piss and rain. And I was walking up William Street in Limerick with a kit bag in one hand with my pyjamas and my tracksuits in it. And I was gambling on my phone in the other hand on my way to being sentenced. So it was something that happened to you? you got into it around when you came into prison you started to understand that you had a gambling addiction when you obviously knew that oh I knew I, I knew but yeah but you got the help inside in prison do you know I, yeah like oh I did yeah I, I worked with a I worked with a lady in Port Leash called Nolene yeah. Nolene Clancy Kelly she's a counsellor down there and yeah that and education counselling education and help from the chaplaincy services in all the prisons I've been in have been what have done it for me and that's very important to mention because of the, the, there's there's a massive kind of shortages within the prison prison system mm. at the moment across the board mm. we can't get and it's the same on the outside but you were obviously you obviously got the help you needed yeah there was probably a waiting list I was very lucky yeah um, insofar as I got my I got my barrister to ask the judge to insist that I got it yeah and the judge made it part of my order yeah so therefore, I suppose, they looked at it and they saw it on the order, so they went, Jesus, I better try and get him in. That was a good move. Well, I needed to do it. Yeah, that was a good move because it's after, we can see, I can see here, you know, even from speaking to you earlier on, the changes in your, your thinking oh, yeah. around addiction, and around yeah. particularly gambling, because I know how cunning that can be with all addictions. Like that, that still goes on for me there where I might be passing a bookies and I, I can tell myself, actually, I'm not a compulsive gambler at all. Like, I can go in there and, and, and maybe do lateral numbers. I know for a fact I'm in there the next week and everything that I have is gone. You know, it's that. Yeah. It's that coming. I think one of the bigger things that I learned with her that I didn't ever do work on before was the impact that my behaviour had on the victims of the crimes that I put, but also on my friends and family. Mm. I never cared about any of that shit before. All I cared about was myself. Where am I going to get the next week to do this? And the next recruit was always going to be the one that made me the fortune where I'd be able to pay back everyone and be set up for the rest of my life and everyone would love me. You know, that kind of way. Yeah. Can you speak to the piece you said there about the victims of your crimes? Because a lot of the time people look at fraud and white-collar crime as, like, almost victimless. For sure. The insurance companies are paying. Someone is paying. There's always a victim, mm. you know? I mean, it's easy for me to say I didn't. And that was the way before that I always justified the crimes I was pulling to myself sure I didn't go around betting up an old woman I didn't take her handbag I didn't break into her house I didn't put a knife to anyone's throat at the end of the day I took money from people which is <laughs> which is wrong you know like the insurance companies they have to pay people's salary you know at the end of the day they were the victim there is always a victim there'll be a lot of people listening to this now who may be victims of other people yeah you know and I can sense the sincerity in your in your words and I can see it in your demeanour here as you're sitting across from me you know, and obviously some members of your own family were probably 
know that this is you down the line because you're going to tell them. Yeah. And they will listen to this. What would you like to say to them? Your family members or anybody within your family who may have been been a victim to some of your own? I suppose the one thing I've learned is that words are very easy to come by, especially with me. I'm educated, I'm smart, and I always had a habit of being able to say the right thing, you know. Yeah. Um, to me, the only way I can really do this to people... Is action. Is, to, is, is for them to see me happy outside and to see me not doing this thing. Like, that's one thing that'll always stay with me is... My mother and father, God rest them, they did everything they could for me to keep me out of jail. All those times, they bailed me out, more times repaid, more people that came knocking on the door for money. All they ever wanted was for me not to be doing the things I was doing. Like, I have two periods in my life where I can remember my mother and father being most happy with me. And those were the long periods where I wasn't gambling. You know? Like, so that's really the only way I know that I can show people that I'm genuinely sorry for the things I've done. Are you nervous about getting out and maintaining your recovery when you get out? Or are you confident? Confident. You're setting up a lot more. Yeah, and I've done a lot more work on myself. You were talking about personal development and things like that earlier. You know, I've done an awful lot of work on on myself that I never did before. You know, I did a lot of projects through education in school, mostly, and I've done a lot of work one-on-one with chaplains and with counsellors. And and, and society is looking out. Is looking out for 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 more people like you, like well, people who have experienced scam addiction. And uh, you've came through so much. Maybe the next route that you do go down is maybe down the route of helping people that are yeah in some form of addiction. Well, I, I, I understand it better. I've done a lot of stuff in here. Hopefully, that'll stand to me when I get out. Like there was um, there's a, a writing in prisons competition as part of the Listowel Riders Festival, which is a huge festival every year. And I've won the prize, the overall prize for the last two years. But this year, because I'm in an open place like this and I'm given a temporary release programme, I was invited down to Listowel a couple of weeks to receive the award on the awards night. And there was like a packed house. There were 600 people there and I had to get up and speak about why I was there. And I was very kind of nervous about the whole thing. And uh, But... The genuine response that I got off of people afterwards was just incredible. Like, I mean, I, I was kind of half kind of hiding away and hoping people wouldn't come over to me afterwards and this, that and everything. And everybody that just came up, just, you know, like I got a standing ovation mm. on the night. Um, you have a good way of words, obviously, if you're creative writing. Yeah, but I enjoy it, yeah. It's, mm. it's something I do. It's something I like doing. Um and it was a big part of what helped me get through prison, you know. And does it flow or do you have to put thought into it? Bit of both. Bit of both. Bit of both. Yeah. I'm a natural bullshitter. Like, I'm a compulsive gambler that's able to rob people out of money with my gob, so... Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> so, yeah. Just to bring it back a touch there, um, just for anybody that's listening, um, we were talking a little bit about gambling being the silent one. <laughs> this, the... The, the addiction that you can't see yeah. but the devastation it causes when people find out what it has actually done because we both probably know people who men who probably have remodelers their home yeah. behind their wives back yeah. and got into maybe 40 or 50 or 60 thousand euros yeah. worth of debt we both know the devastation of that where relationships are, are completely destroyed and mm. people people's lives are destroyed yeah. 
you know um, what would you actually say to any man that's listening to our woman our woman listening to this right now and they're going through that in their own heads they're struggling they're racking up drug debt or gambling debts they're robbing from this person and that person what kind of advice would be meaningful to them at this moment I suppose personally speaking if I was able to swallow my pride back in the day I probably wouldn't have gotten myself into half the trouble I did and if I had the balls to ask for the help I needed but in my and I can only speak for myself but pride was what stopped me from getting the help that I needed and pride was what stopped me from getting better quicker than I have and anybody that needs help don't be afraid to ask for it mm. you know there's Gamblers Anonymous there's a confidential helpline there that's open 24-7 most cities and towns have Gamblers Anonymous meetings every week um, Pawnee's organisation Extern Extern yeah yeah, yeah. they're specialists there yeah. as well yeah and the uh, Gambling Awareness Trust Gambling Gamble Care and things like that there's you know there's there's a whole host of there's a whole host of um helpful opportunities out there yeah. but I do think also that more needs to be done at government level but that's completely there's another podcast in there yeah thanks for your time no problem best thanks. of luck when you get out thanks guys Not a thanks, thank you God bless the Tunaris podcast is proudly sponsored by Inline Eco your trusted partner in asbestos removal and re-roofing services across Ireland your peace of mind and safety are our top priorities. For more information, visit inlineeco.ie. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.